Judge. <laughs> Follow me. We had a witness like that, right? I'm not the one, but I know who is, so we leave him alone. Well, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open them up with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 11. Now, Miss Judy, is those handouts in the back? Uh, we do have a business meeting this coming Wednesday. We have minutes from our last meeting, uh, quarterly meeting, out back on the table. If you want to take a copy of that, kind of read over that, just prepare for this upcoming meeting. You're more than welcome to do that. Uh, and we'll have our meeting at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. I also want to mention next Sunday, Greg Bastian, uh, the, the shoebox guy that was up here, he will be preaching next Sunday, so you can prepare for his preparation for that. I know he will greatly appreciate that. Well, let me invite you to, um, to look at these verses here with me. I want to begin reading in verse number 11, and we'll read down through uh, verse number 22, verse 11 through verse 22 of chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. And by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship, uh, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Uh, I'm going to just uh, pray over the reading of God's word. We'll look at this together. Father, we thank you for this morning we can gather together. We come just so thankful for your word. So thankful as Peter is reminding us these great and precious promises. Help us now, Lord, through your spirit to see them. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we've been looking at the Old Testament figure Abraham. As we have been looking through the account of Genesis 12 through 25 in his life and, and really hallmarks or, or high points of his life where he demonstrated great faith. And that is what our reader or writer in Hebrews has been trying to highlight to us. Well, we know the whole story of Abraham. We, we see it laid out in front of us on two accounts. Uh, you see his failures where he, his wife was mistaken to be a sister with the intent of that was what Abraham wanted. 
uh, afraid that maybe Abraham would be murdered for his wife uh, and they could take his wife to be their own. And so you see, even in Abraham's actions, how even this promise of God was fragile uh, when it comes to human perspective, and yet God was faithful uh, and spared that. Again, another account, we read that Sarah decided that she was tired of waiting, and Abraham didn't stop her, and so she took one of her servants and gave it to Abraham and and said to him, let's have an heir through this woman, and then you can you can just keep on. Uh, raising him and he can be the recipient of the blessings and uh, as you know uh, she despised that decision despised that servant and it has been a problem for the Jews ever since uh, as they went and acted in their own way the only reason I bring that out is because when we look at the Bible God doesn't shrink back from showing us the good the bad and the ugly to put it one way We see both the triumphs and the failures of the Old Testament saints and even the New Testament saints as we look at Peter and others in the word of God. Yet what we see in Abraham displayed for us in the book of Hebrews is, well, it should be worth saying as we see the faults and failures of those Old Testament peoples, it reminds us there was only one perfect man. So some of you young ladies looking for a husband just... The, the one perfect man's Jesus. Uh, so start with him. I would say that to you. Uh, and Abraham, just like Joseph, just like Isaac, just like you and just like me, needed a Savior. We need a Savior. Well, looking at the faults and failures of Abraham uh, is, is a worthy um, pursuit as you read through there to notice those things. But here he brings us back to something Uh, of a substance found in Abraham, a a dogged or an untiring, a relentless faith that he had in God. He did have his problems. We see that. He had his baggage that's understood. But he also had a relentless faith in God and who God was. And that's what's being highlighted in front of us. From the beginning when God called him out of Ur till uh, we see him dying in chapter 25, Abraham believed God. He had a strong faith in God, unquestionable obedience, especially in the trial mentioned in verse number 17. Now, last week, just by way of review, we looked at several descriptions of Abraham's faith to show us some of what it means to believe in God and what it looks like when we say we believe in God, what that, what that is manifested or how that is manifested in our life. And first, we said that this kind of faith is described by obedience. Abraham obeyed God. God called him to leave Ur and leave all of his family and go to a place he would show him without all of the details he didn't have. God didn't share that, and yet the Bible says Abraham obeyed him. He got Sarah and his stuff, and he went, he went camping. What we read, he camped for 100 years in a land that was not his own. He obeyed God. Faith is marked by obedience. Marked by obedience. Because we believe him. We believe who he is and what he has said is true. Then we follow him. We obey him. And that is true with you and I this morning. We also said faith was patient or persevering. He lived without possessing any of the full promises that God had given to him. A land which the only thing that he owned was, uh, was a place to bury his wife at the end of 175 years. He had waited 25 years for Isaac, and what you see in our text here, even that was kind of 
put in tension when you see what God has called him to do. And yet in the midst of all of that waiting, he still believed God. He didn't say, well, I, I, I put in my time, God. Either give it to me now or I'm done. I'm walking away. You don't see that in the life of Abraham. He believed the promises of God, and yet they were far off. They were not his possession at that moment. He greeted them warmly and trusted God in this life. Faith itself is persevering. It is patient. That's the very thing that he's calling these Hebrew writers to, calling you and me too, as we believe in God, to wait on God, keep trusting God, despite your circumstances and despite the season that you find yourself in, because as what we'll see here in just a moment, God is faithful. Abraham showed a patience, a perseverance. But thirdly, we noticed last week that he was confident. We really see that in verse number 11 with Sarah. She was confident and said it was by faith that Sarah had received power to conceive when she was past age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And so she believed God and that believing God as her and Abraham came together as he knew his wife and that, that kind of intimate language, uh, they bore a son. Why? Because God was faithful. They were confident in God's ability to do the impossible his ability to work and fulfill his promises. And I want us to consider two more uh, descriptions of faith this morning as we look at the life of Abraham, uh, beginning in verse number 17 through verse 22, and that is a faith that is tested and a faith that is passed on. A faith that is tested and a faith that is passed on. Beginning in verse 17, we read, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Now we go back to what we had just mentioned about Sarah in verse number 11, and he says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And not to reiterate too much, but she was 90, Abraham was 100 years old, and God was able to bring this about. It was a testimony that she believed, she trusted that God was able to do this. And there's something foundational there. She, by faith, trusted in God's ability, not her own. By faith, she, she placed herself in God's hands and, and the outcome in God's hands. She considered him trustworthy because God says, in a year, you will have a child. And so they, and she acted by faith. She basically said, in another way, God is faithful. And that's what we mean by that, that he is trustworthy to carry out what he has promised. He is trustworthy to carry out what he has promised. We can take him at his word even if we've never seen the outcome of what he's promised. This is the very thing that Abraham is put to the test at. When he's asked to take his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loved to go and offer as a sacrifice. But the reality is that's the problem we face. If you want to say in, in one way, testing and temptations and things that we face in this life or trials that we, we like to name them, or produce in themselves a problem or faith comes into a place of conflict. And what I mean by that is because we live in a, in a world with apparent contradictions. 
especially as we come to read the word of God and we come to see uh, God's word and in light of what we see around us in the world, which is set at odds with it. Uh, There's no other place you need to look than the Beatitudes where we read that there are those who are blessed. Or we could say another way, the, the blessed ones or blessings, multiple blessings be upon. And who would you think he would talk about? Well, surely it would not be who he does talk about. Because we don't consider in this life that the blessed ones are the, the poor, those who are in poverty in spirit, or, or the meek, or, or blessed are the ones who mourn. In, in our understanding of blessedness, in our understanding of having God's favor, we, we tend to anticipate, we think of the opposite. Blessed are those who are, who are bold, who are strong, who are, who are with means and with prosperity, those who are joyfully singing and and. and all the other stuff that goes along with that, celebrating. And yet Jesus says, no, the opposite is true. You see that conflict even in our own lives when we experience that. And we need not to look further to many other promises. We see the same thing going on where he speaks about blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Or when we read in Paul telling us in Philippians that God shall meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory, and we find ourselves in want. And through the trial that we face and the encounters in our life, we, we are told that we will never be abandoned. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And yet how many of us have faced and dealt with loneliness over the past year and a half? All of this pulling at us, this one nagging question, is God trustworthy? Is he faithful in the midst of all of this? That conflict of faith, that spiritual battle of what we experience against what we know to be true about God and what we expect to receive from him. Pain and sorrow are their own kind of furnace, trying the faith of the children of God, one of which no one is exempt. To degrees, yours may differ from the person beside you, but we all face this this conflict of faith, this this struggle, the trials which we encounter day in and day out. No one is exempt from that. Peter likens it to, uh, Peter, both Peter and James speak about this, Peter likens it to a refiner's fire, doesn't he? First Peter we read, you have been grieved by various trials so that the testing of the genuineness of your faith much more precious than that of perishes, that of gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found a result of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. What is he saying? He's saying that all that you're experiencing, all that you're going through, that refiner's fire is really testing your faith, producing a faith that has been tested or that has been proven. And that faith is more valuable than gold, he said. James likewise tells us those famous words when he opens up his letter to the readers. Count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials and temptations. You kind of wonder what planet he lives on. Like, what, what in the world are you talking about, James? Well, he says all of that is a, is, is a work against your faith. is testing, proving your faith. And that in itself ought to be a joyful thing because the test of your faith and the trials which, which push it and, and stretch it and, and beat up against it, those things are producing in you a steadfastness. You could say another word, a stick-to-itness. 
Something that, that shows a solidness, a, 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 a permanence. And he says that in itself is producing a maturity so that you wouldn't be children tossed to and fro and just bouncing around at everything coming at you. It all goes back down to the purposes of God in trials. Now, there's several of them. I'm going to just give you a few that come off the top of my head, and it's not an exhaustive list, but it is the reason why we face trials, and there could be many more. So if you have others in your mind or know of other passages of Scripture, uh, that's great. But one of them is it, it just reminds us, trials in themselves remind us we live in a broken world. And I need not tell you this because you tell your children this. Things just don't always work out the way you want it to work out. But more than that, we're caught in this struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. We live in a fallen world, and yet things just don't happen. But it's, but it's, but it's also being wrapped up in the struggle between the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, and, and, and its enemy. The kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of this world. Persecution against the church is, is not necessarily against you, but it's against the Lord you serve. That's why Jesus, when he stands and confronts Paul, he says, why are you persecuting me? The reality, the, the presence of those trials remind us of that. But secondly, uh, trials themselves have a work of exposing our sin. Uh, my mom used to say, uh, when you squeeze a lemon, what do you get? Some of you might say lemonade. That's the first word that comes to your mind, right? You got a few more steps before you get something you want to drink. You get lemon juice, sour. I think she was saying that when you smash your thumb with a hammer, what usually comes out is what's on the inside, right? Some of you guys do that, and you hope that uh, somebody's not around listening to you. Trials expose what's on the inside. It exposes sin in our life, and it brings those things to the surface. John Piper likens it to a... Uh, to a glass of water and when it's shaken the the sediment in the bottom is stirred up and brought to the surface it, it is in that way god uses trials to purify us to to weed out or clean out those things in our life as they are exposed and we repent of those things and we turn and and con and confess christ they expose our sin but they also expose our weakness they show us in the midst of, of suffering, in the midst of trials, that we are dependent upon God. We're not self-sufficient. Amen? And some of us are reminded of that quite often. Many of us need to be reminded of that, that we need God. We need his help, his presence, his guidance, his, his wisdom. We need his touch, his strength. Trials in themselves bring us to that reminder. Paul struggled with that as he dealt with the thorn in the flesh. But it also brings us to see the depth of faith that we possess. It is that way in the case of Abraham. Here we, we see unearthed in this man who has received part of the promise of God. His faith in God being put on display. Not to God. God knows what's on the inside. But to himself and to everyone who comes along after him. And, and I'm sure you've seen that in the life of a godly saint who is going through literally turmoil in this life and then through it all you stand in amazement how in the world could you have such a joy and such peace but then through in, in in the midst of that god's grace is manifesting manifesting through them the gospel and their faith in him but it also trials also a means to bring us closer 
to grow in fellowship and confidence with Christ, to know him in a fuller way. Paul teaches us that in Philippians chapter number three, that I may know him. But in that knowing, he says to know him in the fellowship of suffering, fellowship of suffering. It isn't that we just know the verses that we put on coffee cups and put on a on a wall and a plaque as people come in. And uh, and as far as me and my house will serve the Lord and all the stuff that we like, it is in the midst of struggle. It is in trials and in the midst of the pressure where those verses are tempered out in our life. It is in the midst of need we find God's provision enough. We find contentment in Him and His ways and His will enough. It is in the midst of those experiences in life do we see the Word of God continually bringing us back to that reality that God is trustworthy. His Word is true. He will be faithful. But those things are are met out, not just in the easy walk of life that we enjoy. They they are there. We rejoice in them like that. But it is in the depths of affliction that these things are tempered and made real in our lives, are they not? So faith in itself in our life is tested. We're brought back to this same reality, not in the same way, because Abraham's trial and temptation is unique to him. God's not asking you and I to go take Isaac if you've got a son named Isaac or someone in your family or, or your own son in this manner. This is unique to Abraham. But, but the underlying principle of what is going on is, is, is the very same thing for all of our lives. Abraham believed God. She counted him faithful to fulfill his promise. Will Abraham? If Job answers the question uh, that he will serve him without his riches, then Abraham answers the question that he will serve him even without his son. And that's what you see here in the opening of this passage, don't you? It was by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, whom he had received. The promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, it's very easy to see the conflict in that, isn't it? Abraham saying, Isaac will be the vehicle by which I will fulfill my blessings to you. It will be through him and, and that the multitude of great nations will come out of you. It will be through him that, and his generations that will possess the land. All of this, all this resting on Isaac. And then God tells him, take Isaac that everything seems to be resting on and, and go offer him up to me. Not offer him up in the way that Samuel's mom offered Samuel, where you go live in a, in a parish somewhere or whatever the case may be. No, offer him up as a burnt offering to be consumed. Give his life back. How are you going to do that, God? How are you going to still fulfill your promises and, and still, still be true to your word? And then ask this of Abraham, how are you going to do that? And that's the perplexity that you find Abraham it doesn't, it doesn't help none that when you read the Genesis account, he, he kind of emphasizes to Abraham who Isaac is. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one whom you love, and offer him to me. Those of you who have children and grandchildren, it would be the act of taking part of, if not your very life, and laying it down on the altar to God. We leave ourselves, and it, 
doesn't take very long to work through verses 17 to 19, but we leave ourselves in somewhat perplexed state as we read the account. And, and in fact, you, you find yourself, when you read Genesis, very frustrated. And so what we do as preachers and teachers, we humanize Abraham because after all, there's something wrong with a man who gets up the next morning without arguing with God. After he argued that God would spare Sodom and Gomorrah and, and those wicked cities and here his own son is on the line and there's no prayer, there's no plea, there's, there's nothing mentioned about God, change your mind. And yet here, Surely there must have been some ways we see the joy and the light in his eyes as he looked at his son being dimmed as he considered what God had called him to do. One commentator says he got up and he did this without telling Sarah. Why? Because she probably wouldn't let him go. I don't know. All of his hopes and dreams rested in the son he loved. And that is the very thing God asked him to take up to this mountain. But it's worth noting and I remember a Father's Day message years ago on this passage of Scripture in Genesis that said the greatest thing you can do as a father is worship God more than you worship your children. That's just worth mentioning this morning to myself and you that are here this morning. The greatest thing you can do is worship God above your children because that's exactly what you see Abraham doing. In a season in his life where he ought to be enjoying some of the blessings of God and ought to be taking it easy and watching his son grow up and anticipating how many kids he's going to have and all of that, it is in this season in his life where, where, where things ought to be going smoothly that God brings about this paramount test in his life to take that thing which he loves most and give to him. And some of you know that, and you've experienced it in your own life. When you think and you look about what's going on in your life, you think, I ought to be taking it easy at this point in my life. And yet God's providence, his plan, the things going on in your life, he, he kind of reminds you, no, i got something else going on for you. More challenging than what you've experienced. It was not easy. And yet what you see is the pattern of Abraham's life. He obeyed God. Reading Genesis, you, you see no time gap. The next morning he got up, saddled the animals, he got his servants, and he went on the way. Without delay, he obeyed God. Why? Because that was the pattern of his life. That was something that he, had, that, that was something that he did. He obeyed God in the beginning of his life, and he carried it on through. If you're not living and obeying God at this point in your life, at least following him to some degree, there's no sense of thinking that when things get difficult and hard, you're going to obey him then. It was a pattern of his life. He immediately obeyed God, even in the difficulty that we see he was determined to do what God, has told, God had told him to do. Actually, when you read verse 17, it is as if he had already offered up Isaac before he ever left home. Because in his mind, he had determined to do the will of God and carry it out to the fullest. In his heart and, and in his soul and in his determination, it was, I heard the voice of God. I understood what God told me to do. And he would carry it out to the fullness, even taking the life of his own son. I was thinking about that kind of determination, relentlessness. And I thought about Boaz. I often think about Boaz when I think about a man who's, who's on a mission. Some of you know the story, but... Naomi and Ruth is there wondering what's going to happen. Ruth just did an awkward kind of proposal to Boaz. And he leaves immediately from the threshing floor to the city gate to take care of that thing. And Naomi says, don't worry, Ruth. I think she probably called her honey. I don't know. Don't worry. He's not going to rest until this thing's finished today. 
until you're redeemed and you are his wife. That's the same kind of determination you see in Abraham. But notice the evidence of this. How did Abraham do such a thing? You see in verse number 19. He considered. Now you remember verse number 11. She considered. What did she consider? Him faithful who had promised. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. MacArthur notes here that if Noah speaks of the duration of faith and Abraham shows its depth. Really what he's saying here, God is faithful to his word. And the depths of that reality gripping Abraham's heart, gripping his life, that God will carry out his promises that he had given him is so much that if God required the life of Isaac, my son, whom all of his promises seem to be resting on, then he'll raise him back from the dead. Who thinks that way? Basically, God would have to bring him back before God would break his word. You know, the scripture reminds us God cannot lie. That he will move heaven and earth to carry out his will and his promises to his people. Though they be long, though they be difficult, that they seem uh, insurmountable, though whatever they are, the Bible says God cannot lie. He cannot back off of what he has already said. He needs not. He doesn't make any errors. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world around us. It doesn't matter what we see or how we feel or everything that, that, that comes at us in the midst of all of that. Abraham is saying God is true and God is faithful. The very thing which the test of our faith is doubting. You remember the serpent in the, in the garden has God really said? He's not questioning the words of God. He's questioning the intent of God. To view God's word and his character and his goodness and his trustworthiness and suspicion. That's that's exactly what happens when we go through trials. We find that that in the difficulty, is God really for us? Is he really good in the midst of all of this? Does he really know? Does he really care? And all that were brought back to the gospel and seeing the crucifixion of Christ. And God says, who will separate you from the love of Christ? If he did this, will he not do everything else? We see the glimpse of Abraham's faith in Genesis when he tells his servants that I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Showing to us that he believed not only he himself, but the boy will come back. He believed God to the extent that he was willing to sacrifice his son at the word of God, still trusting that God would make good on his promise. To show you and me that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our struggles, God will make good on his promise. You cannot trust God too much. And that's the point, isn't it? I don't don't know as if that's our problem. I say our problem because I'm part of <laughs> part of you guys, and I feel like my problem is that we trust God too little. That His promises are good, and they're in the Word, and 
and, and yet they're in front of us. And it's sometimes we look kind of questioningly at it with a big question mark. Will he be true? The, the presence of our anxiety in this present age and the doubt and the fighting and the wars and, and lack of forgiveness and the bitterness and all those things which come at us and that we hold sometimes dear in us is, is all evidence that, that God just may not be faithful. He may not be trustworthy. And Abraham is saying to us what the word of God says to us over and over in every other example that we read in scripture. God is faithful. He is trustworthy. You can count on him to fulfill his promises. I love the reminder of this as Abraham goes forth and trusting God, offering up right, uh, uh, offering up Isaac, resting solely in the promise of God and content. And I think that's a big word. But in the whole process, content to let God work out the problem of how he's going to fulfill his word. He's saying he believes God. He knows his trustworthiness and he is content to let God be God and direct his steps and fulfill his word. I know sometimes you pray about circumstances, and it's right to do that in some ways it is, but, but don't we always lay out the providence you wish God would take? You know, here's the kind of path I want to go. I'd rather take a left and not a right, and, and if we could go up there and make an easy stop along the way. And, and, you know, we like to direct the path, but in the process of this, in the test, in the trial of his faith, he holds on to the promises of God, content to let God be God to fulfill what he said. And all he's doing in that is reminding us that God will do, he is trustworthy to have someone rest in him like that. Have someone trust him like that. And can I say that's true with you? That God is trustworthy. We don't commit our lives to him thinking and wondering, will he keep it? We don't, we don't look to him for forgiveness and wondering if he really holds it against us or he forgives us. We don't look to him wondering, will we have strength when we're weak or will we have endurance when we need it most? All of it, when God has promised us, will be fulfilled in his way, in his time, but he will bring it to pass. Here we find that, that faith in God is, is able to bear us up in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of trials which we face. Faith is tested and it does, if we have faith in God, it does hold us. It is true. Abraham is a great reminder of that. I said we had two things mentioned here in description of faith. Abraham's faith was tested. But secondly, it was passed on Isaac and Jacob and Joseph each here in the demonstration of verse 20, 21, and 22 all show that same kind of faith. And just to be honest, if you read in Genesis, you, you look at Isaac and it looks like a reality TV show. I mean, it's crazy the stuff that's going on in Isaac's home. Mom against dad and child against child and mom against child and other, you know, and other child. He's just going out hunting. He don't care about any of them. You got a lot of crazy stuff going on in Isaac's life. And yet in the midst of this, the writer says, it is by faith he blessed them. Why is that important? Because he didn't have any land to give them. 
But he says the very promises given to Abraham, the very promises of God that was passed on to Isaac, he's passing on to his children saying, God will be good on his promises. The faith that was displayed in their father is the same faith that was passed on in the declaration of blessings. God will be faithful. God will be faithful. You see the same thing with Jacob as he blesses his grandchildren with whom he thought he would never meet by a son he thought was dead. And the same thing with, with Joseph. Isn't that interesting? Verse 22, look at that with me. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of Israelites. How sure are you of that, Joseph? How positive are you that God will deliver the people out of Egypt? He makes them swear, vow, that when God does do this, take my bones and let them rest in the land that God has promised. Let them rest in the land that God has promised. Continue leaning on the trustworthy faithfulness of God. And in the midst of our trials, that is the very thing that we are to do. The psalmist, Psalms 42, that heart-wrenching psalm when he speaks about waves coming over him after and after. What does he do in the midst of that? Why are you so cast down, O my soul? Hope in whom? God. Why? Because I shall yet again praise you. Because you're faithful. Because he is trustworthy. Polycarp, a great reminder of this in uh, in the early church, showed us this kind of resolve as he was called to repent. His famous words, 86 years after I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king and savior? What does he find in those 86 years? God is faithful. God is trustworthy. The story and the account's quite uh, almost somewhat humorous as the, the, the governor that is threatening him is, is kind of aggravated at his resolve when he says, be done with the atheist. And Polycarp stands up and points at the Romans. He said, be done with the atheist. And he says, don't you know I can throw you to the wild animals? He said, well, bring them on. He says, well, if the animals don't intimidate you, I can burn you alive. He says, don't you know that fire will only last an hour? But what of the fire of eternal damnation for the ungodly? You, you see that kind of resolve in the midst of difficulty, that grace of God worked out in their life, not because, not because they themselves were so strong, but because God himself is so trustworthy. God himself is so trustworthy. And after all, when you come to a place like this, there's no... There's no greater reminder than the life of Abraham and his test to rejoice in the greater substance of that test which he had hoped for. Maybe you need to hear this this morning. That as Abraham took the knife and raised it to slay his own son, God withheld his sacrifice, gave him a substitute, redeemed him from death. Because one day a greater father who had an only begotten son whom he loved from eternity past, would walk up another hill, the same mountain, carrying, a, carrying the, the wood that would be the knife which would slay him. So that the cost of the blessing which fell upon Abraham and all those who by faith would put their trust in God would be satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ, his only son. The father would not withhold the knife. It speaks of the great love of the Father, but it speaks also of the great price to pay for salvation. 
He shows us his faithfulness, his trustworthiness through the gift and the sacrifice of his only begotten son. And over and over, promises after promises after promises, if he has done this, how will we withhold any good thing from those who come to him? How do you answer that, church? I know some, I could have put this in appendix in the last sermon last week, probably should have in, in some ways, but in other ways, many of you are going through a lot of stuff. Some of it aggravating, some of it heavy, some of it not so heavy, some of it just awkward, and in the midst of all of it, it is pressing against us. Can God be trusted in the middle of this? And you know what? Look back in, in, in your walk of faith. What does it tell you? Without a question, without a doubt, yes, we consider him faithful to his promise. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we just pray that you would, you would just encourage us, remind us that you can never be trusted too much. Lord, help us in the midst of the things that we face right now, the things we're battling with in culture and society, in our own homes, in our own hearts, Lord. In the midst of all of that, Bring us joyfully and confidently into the, your throne, into your presence, knowing that you are trustworthy to carry the burdens with us. Let us, as Peter calls us, to cast our care upon you because you have shown over and over you care for us. And Lord, I, I pray that if someone here this morning does not know you, God, that they would not, they would, they would without a doubt be be reminded that you are faithful and trustworthy and that to come to you is is to come to someone who will receive them and that if they would repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in jesus christ the bible says you will in no wise you will in no way cast them out and i just pray even this morning that they would do that where they're at and lord we thank you for this day you've given us thank you for your word in jesus name amen